such a pleasure to be here. I must, must tell you that. I should say, too, that, um, you know, the longer I've been here at Ladyfield, the more I realize that there's just a set of relationships that begin to form. You really look forward to seeing people. Um, and at times, you're, you, when you're in a place where you're not really familiar, where you're not committed or comfortable or uncertain of what you're doing, and all of a sudden someone shows up and says, Hello, Ron. What? Well, Andy, what are you doing here in Edinburgh? <laughs> Andy White comes up to me. I'm, I'm up to do a talk in, in Dundee and ready to fly back. And here I have this wonderful little encounter at the airport. And what a treat that was. Now, today, after I'm done, I, I go to a Heathrow hotel. And then tomorrow morning, I fly out to be with my family. What a treat that's going to be for Easter. And uh, then also some other travel and ministry. And I'm really looking forward to it. Next Sunday, I'll be preaching at the church that I come from in Oregon. And uh, all kinds of relationships there. And I'll be able to talk about the dear friends that I have here in, in uh, Ladyfield. And that's just the way it works, isn't it? We're defined relationally. We're made as relational people. And our friendships, our bonds, is what makes life work for us. And that's really what Galatians is about. It's the ultimate relationship that we get to have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we unpack that this morning, I'd love us to just enjoy the fact that God has opened his heart to us through Paul, the ministry of the Spirit, and just respond to him. So let me pray to that end. Lord, we would ask that your Spirit would be the one who would coach, encourage, and bless us this morning. May your Scriptures speak into our hearts. May we hear your, your heart uh, through what Paul has written and, and in some measure through my own attempt to disclose and unpack what I found here in the text. And may we be encouraged by your love for us and be refreshed uh, by that word. Just as eating good fruit refreshes us uh, at a meal, so, Father, may our souls be refreshed as we taste and see how good you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, now, how does a person put together a sermon? Have you ever thought of that question? What, what do you do? To, you know, here we are up here to give a talk. How do you get ready for it? And I thought I'd just give you a little bit of a snapshot. I'm not sure I have a good reason for that, except just to let you know that there's an ambition, I think, that any of us who get up in front have, that, that we become self-feeders, that we're not just dependent on other people to come and talk to us, but rather we learn how to take the word out and unpack it for ourselves. So maybe it wouldn't be bad to give you a little snapshot of how I came to the point of being able to share what will be a nice three-point outline, well, nice, a three-point outline uh, that will make up the substance of the message this morning. Shall I do that? Is that okay? Uh, so here's what, what I did. I sat down and I said, okay, what's the section that I have? Verses 16 through 26. Ten verses, not too many. That means I could do a little introductory work, uh, like talking about how you do a sermon. And as I prepared for it, what do I do? First of all, I listen. Now, of course, I'm reading, but I'm listening to the heart uh, that Paul is offering to us. And he's revealing his exposure to God's heart. And I'm expecting that to be the case. And I'm looking forward to, to what he wants to tell me. That is the Lord working through Paul. And as I, as I listen, 
I, I remember what Art Branson, my first mentor, the man who, when I was a brand new believer, as a teenager, just 15 turned 16, uh, came to a, a youth group in Spokane, Washington, in the States, and there was Art Branson, the man who is quoted in the Bible. Well, maybe not, but he would so often say, oh, you guys, taste and see the Lord is good, that that was what he was about. He was a man who loved the Lord and who fed him on the Lord's word and was captured by Christ and wanted us to also share in that in, uh, enjoyment that he had. So Art did a lot to coach me because my heart was ready to grow. I wanted to feed. I wanted to learn. I wanted to be able to carry forward in that, in that new faith that I had. And uh, one of the things that Art said is, he said, Ron, uh, as you read the word, recognize that there are points when the word will clash with what you value. It won't fit with what you are thinking and believing because you're coming from a frame of reference that has to be redirected, corrected, straightened out. So always be responsive. So when I come to prepare a sermon, I sit down and say, what is it saying? Not what do I want it to say? Does that make sense? So that's the shocking moment at times. I go, whoa, I don't think I noticed this before. So sometimes it will surprise us. You have to come with an open heart. Secondly, I look for the themes that are repeated. I'm always asking, what are the repeated words? What are the repeated ideas? Because that's how anyone who communicates will offer what they communicate. Uh, repetition is the mother of all learning. Uh, as a teacher, I learned that. Let me just beat an idea like a drum, and eventually my students will catch the point. Well, guess what? The Lord knows to do that as well as he directs people like Paul to write what we have in scriptures. So as I'm looking, I go, okay, what's being repeated? And a lot of times I'll either highlight or make a, a mark. And so I've got my, my text highlighted, and I see, let me see, spirit, spirit, uh, verse 16, spirit, verse 17, twice it says spirit, verse 18, spirit, verse 22, spirit, uh, verse 25, spirit, twice. So I see, oh, he's going to be talking once again about the importance of the Holy Spirit. So that's a starting point. That's a theme that I start to notice. I also discovered that he talks about living or in... Uh, I was working, by the way, with the, the newest edition of the NIV. And I discovered they shift from living to walking, which is the, closer to the underlying Greek. So living or walking in a certain way, the pathway. In fact, that's the beautiful vision of walking. It's one step at a time. We get from here to there by taking steps. So we can summarize that as saying, this is the way we live. But that's a theme that is mentioned uh, two or three times here. And it starts and ends, this idea of walking. Let us walk, let us live by the Spirit. And then we find out down in verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That whole imagery of walking with Christ, walking with God by his spirit. So that started to catch my attention. We also find that he talks here about the issue of the sinful nature. And once again, in the new NIV, the newest edition of the NIV, they go back to a word that's closer to the underlying Greek. Uh, uh, Peter mentioned it last week that you'll notice in your foot down at the bottom of your of your Bible. And by the way, we're on page uh, 823, if you want to open your Bibles, if you don't have them open, you'll see down there it says uh, the word um, uh, sinful nature is actually the underlying word flesh. And I want to 
pick, pick on that word a little bit later and comment on it. So it's not bad to use the, the word flesh in terms of what it is that we're battling against. So that word is repeated here a few times and caught my attention. It's in verse 16. It's in verse uh, 17. It's in um, verse 19. So it's an important word, one that we'll see repeated. We also will find that there are structures that the text gives us. And that's really the key. If, if I'm going to offer a three-part sermon or a four-part sermon or a two-part sermon, what I'm going to depend on is what the text offers me as its structure. What are the blocks of thought? What are the development of ideas that the text offers me? And as I walk through it, I discover there are structures or comparisons and sometimes bookends, things that are repeated from the, from the front end and then repeated at the tail end. I just mentioned one. And uh, the stepping idea, the walking idea. He starts with it and he finishes with it. It's this whole idea of, I want you to listen, Paul is saying, about how to walk, how to live your life progressively, step by step. I want you to catch that. That's an important piece to me. And so I listen to that as I'm preparing the text. One of the things, too, um, that we pay attention to, and oh, by the way, one of the things that I was struck with today for today's talk is there's a really strong comparison. And uh, you may have noticed it in the reading of the scripture that David offered uh, in verses um, 19 and following. We see the acts of the flesh are obvious. And there's a really strong list of some very unhappy behaviors and attitudes. Fair enough. Then we have the next section starts in verse 22, a massive comparison, but the fruit of the spirit. Then we get another list. So that's the kind of structure. Guess where I have to go as a preacher? I have to pay attention to the lists that I've been given there because that's what Paul gives me. So it's not that I'm being arbitrary. I'm guided and shaped in my preparation by what it is that Paul is offering us. And then finally, I look for any extended themes. I can't treat this text as if it's just out of the blue. We're, in fact, part of a series. So what are some of the themes that have been like threads weaving its way through all of what Paul wrote to this little collection of churches in Galatia? And we see some of these themes include flesh and law or sinful nature and law and spirit uh, are among them. So I want to pay attention to those. And then finally, I listen for any words of exhortation, encouragement, direction. And I know that that's the kind of punchline I need to offer so that I'm not imposing on the text something that I want it to offer. But rather, I listen to it and say, what is it trying to tell us? And those are then the punchline pieces that we offer in summary and say, OK, listen to what Paul says. And notice at the end of the text. He twice says, let us, let us. We're not talking about uh, the uh, lettuce patch, but it's the let us make sure we do the things and respond to what have just been, we've just been taught. So there it is. Uh, that means that from here on out, you can just puzzle over the text. And if you listen to me, that's fine. Because really what we want to do is walk through the text and pay attention to what's offered here. So first of all, we titled the sermon fruit you may have noticed that not nice did you see this on the bulletin cover it just makes you want to get the sermon over with so you can go down to the store and find yourself a little bit of fruit to nibble on and um 
And that's appropriate because that's where Paul wants us to go today. To recognize that we are, to the world around us, like a salad bowl full of fruit. And that as we have the fruit of Christ birthed in us, we at Ladyfield can go out to Chippenham and to Wiltshire, wherever we're living, and that's what we're offering, the fruit of the life of Christ in us. And he wants to talk about that as the punchline piece. So I've kind of reached the conclusion of what I want to say. I better get to the point. First of all, the first point we want to start with then as we walk through the text is he starts in verse 16. So I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh um, or the sinful nature for the flesh. I'll continue to use that word desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So that's the inaugural piece that he offers us here. What is it that he wants us to know? If I could summarize it, it would be this, that Christ's spirit comes to change the way we live. We used to live one way. We're now going to live another way. That's what we are offered in everything that we have in Jesus Christ. It makes a difference in the way we live. And that's good news. I appreciated David's presentation to the children. Uh, Until we have a David with his heart changed, uh, we're going to just walk in the ways of Saul when, in fact, God wanted a man after his own heart. And that's what he had in David. Well, how does a heart get changed? That's the question. The answer is what we have here in the text. The challenge we all face, though, is that we used to live for ourselves. Would that be fair? I'll tell you what. Ron Frost... Before I came to faith, well, even after I've come to faith, I've got my issues. But I was not a very happy kid. I, um, I was full of myself, really full of myself. In fact, as far as I was concerned, I was looking for meaning in life and for the center of everything to figure out where does life really begin? How does it operate? So as I looked around to see where's the center of the world, where's the center of the universe... Where does everything pivot? Well, I found out. It was me. (laughs) I was the center of my little universe. And uh, other people who thought they were the center of the the universe just couldn't get along with me because there was serious competition about who really was the center of the universe. Do you see the kind of problem that I had? And that's what Paul is recognizing. He said, you know, you used to live that way. And... um, And that was not according to the Spirit. That's not what God would offer to us if we were to respond to him. And so what Paul does is he points out that the challenge that we have is that we have the sin of self-love that then creates within that self-love a set of ungodly desires. See, what I desire then, if I'm the center of my little universe, is I know what I want that will satisfy my desires and my appetites. And what could ever make me not want what I want? Have you ever thought about that? That's the problem of being captured by false desires. I never want anything else. I never want it to change. I never desire anything other than what I want. And that's not necessarily what God wants. And so how does that ever get changed? Oh, my goodness. And so notice how much that... 
As he's talking here, the question of desires and passions and desires, look at verse 17, desires is the problem. Look at verse 25, passions and desires are the problem. That's where sin really locates, isn't it? It's where our desires are found. So what could ever change my desires? Because I don't want to change my desires, otherwise I wouldn't have desires. If I wanted to change my desires... You see, it's just how we work. We do what we want to do. And only when what I want to do changes will I really start to move from traveling in this direction, the Ron Frost is the center of the universe direction, in my case. You could fill in your own name. Because I know that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins before we met Christ. And when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we might have even been religious while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But we didn't have anything to offer except our own set of desires about how life was meant to be lived. Whereas Christ says, no, no, I'm over here, Paul. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. You see, so Paul is talking about having been zealous for righteousness in the past. But then he found Christ over here calling him in to a new set of desires. And so Paul recognizes from his own life of having to be changed, that he had a set of desires that were contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit just wouldn't get along with his old nature, his old desires, the way he used to live. So the problem of sin, ah, I just don't really want to change. So what is the role of the Spirit then? The Spirit is such a pivotal piece here in what Paul is offering all the way through Galatians. If we don't get the role of the Spirit, we don't get Galatians. Because if we're not careful, we'll use the model that a guy like Aristotle would use. What was Aristotle uh, saying? I've mentioned this before because I'm a church historian, and that really struck me. That even today, people look back to Aristotle as perhaps the best and most articulate spokesman for how to live a life apart from God. And what was his solution? Listen to what the community thinks is useful and write He'd talk about the the extremes and then finding the mean, the golden mean between the extremes. What a community would find acceptable. And even though that might move around and vary, because communities always change in their travel of what's good and what's right. You could even look in the bulletin in terms of what's going on in the UK right now, starting to rethink marriage. And I'll tell you what, there's no golden mean to be found in this whole idea of rearranging what a marriage is. Some things are just plain wrong, and you'll never find a golden mean between two extremes because those who establish the extremes will be forever moving in a culture that's self-referential, always saying, what do you think? What do you think? Oh, here's what I think. And what Aristotle pointed out is that when the community decides what is right, what we do is we just coach the rest of the people in the community and say, here's what you do. You practice what we tell you to practice, and you will then be a person who fits the community. That's Aristotle. We become good by practicing good things. That was interesting because a man who really had his life turned around by reading Galatians, Martin Luther, said that's absolutely wrong. We do not become good by doing good things as if somehow we can change ourselves from the outside in. But instead, having been made righteous, we start to live righteously because a changed heart 
is a new set of changed desires, brings with it a new set of changed desires. And who is it that can change the heart? The answer is God alone. And how does he do that? Now, what Paul is going to be referencing as he talks about the spirit, I'm absolutely convinced is what Jesus had said back to Nicodemus in John chapter three. So as we listen to his talking about the role of the spirit, we have to keep in mind that Paul was not talking out of the blue. He said, yes, I got my gospel straight from Christ, but Christ was the one who also taught. And John summarized that, that no one will be ready for eternity unless we have the spirit of God in us. And the spirit changes us from the inside out. Remember to Nicodemus, Nick, I know you're a theologian. I know you are the leader, probably of the rabbinical approval society, those people that give the accreditation. He said, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't get that we must be born again. Those who don't have the spirit are spiritually dead. That which is born of the and here's why I wanted to word, use the word flesh. Uh, as the new NIV has it and as as the footnote has it, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You must be born again. You, You can live without the spirit. That is, you can have an animation in life, but you're literally dead. You're walking dead. You're a zombie. I think there's a lot of zombie movies out there today. Well, they probably get that from reading. Well, I don't think they read their Bibles. But anyway, The point is that throughout our our Wiltshire County or where I'm going to be in Portland, Oregon, Multnomah County this next week, people think they're alive, but they're dead. They're walking in this direction and making themselves the center of their own little universes and figuring out how to live that way. And over here, there's God who says, I have come to give you life. And the way you have life is to have the spirit of God come from above enter into your life and to bring new life. And when the new life comes, what comes with it? The set of desires that come from Christ himself, because the one who comes and lives within us is the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, the father and the spirit of Christ. He's the spirit of God and the one who inhabits the father and the son. And he's a real person. He shows back that he can be grieved. He can be quenched. Adam and Eve managed to drive him out of their own family and life and relationship. They grieved and quenched and sent the spirit away. In that moment, they died because the spirit is the one who is life. He's the life within us. And with that life comes the desires that are godly, not the stuff that used to be what Ron Frost was about, namely what Ron Frost wanted and fill in your own name. See, that's what it is to be dead in our trespasses and sins. And with this new ambition that comes with, oh, my God, you're wonderful. I never saw you before. That's because I was looking at what I wanted. Now my new desire is what? Like the deer pants at the water brook, so my soul pants for you. Oh, that's a work of the Spirit of God. Go out and knock on the, go down to Sainsbury's tomorrow and say, ah, oh, do you long for God like a deer pants for the water brook? Someone will catch you like, huh? What? What are you talking about? Because if they don't know Christ, that will be the silliest thing that they will have ever heard in their life. But for those of us who know Christ, is there anything more important to us than that dear and delightful relationship that we have in Christ Jesus? So much so that we think about it day and night and it's what dominates us. Remember, that's what Paul was starting, starting with back in Galatians 2. We looked at this a few weeks ago. 
where he says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live, I live by faith, devotion, gazing, looking at Christ, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the way I start to live. A new set of desires coming from a new relationship established by the presence of the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells within me. And so that's what Paul wants to do. He says, you can't live as if you're, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. It just won't go anywhere spiritually. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You must be born again. So Paul is, in effect, alluding to that as he talks at the start of this section. So we move to the next section, verses 19 through 21. And now he's going to talk about what happens when we're living by the flesh. He says, now the acts of flesh are obvious. And he goes through this list. Oh, my goodness. It sounds like the, what, what do they call these newspapers that they've got in London? They're sort of dramatic. Anyway, when I read these newspapers, the headlines go, whoa, who did what? They said what? They got caught doing what? You see, that's the fruit of the flesh, isn't it? That's the quality of the flesh. That someone may, for public purposes, look righteous. And that's always what, for instance, a politician who happens to get caught with his hand in the cookie jar will be wanting to do on the one side. But on the other side, he's doing some things or she's doing things that are simply selfish and self-oriented. Looking for power, looking for prominence, looking for self-advancement perhaps but the nature of the flesh is that there's nothing good in it and in fact the one who's really striking in exposing what the flesh is is none other than jesus himself think about it when you think about the life and ministry of christ he was forever making things clear by sorting out and sifting and splitting and dividing but he did it in ways that had nothing to do with trying to be divisive. Think of John chapter 8. We looked at John 3 just now. John 8. What does he do in John 8? There's a group of people who believed in him. Inverted commas there. But Jesus quickly exposes them as not really believing in him. John chapter 8 verse 30. And in verse 31, he says, if you abide in my word, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it turns out that that group of guys, men uh, in that particular cluster, started to immediately argue with Jesus about what he was saying. We've never been anything but free. We've got a free will. We, we're free will people. We're free life people. We are free. We've never been anything but free. Jesus says, no, you're not. You're a slave to sin. Anyone who sins, sins because they're a slave to sin, living over where I used to live. And until your heart is changed, you're never going to be set free. He says, the reason you can't hear me, you can read this on your own, is because you are of your father, the devil. You do the desires of your father. Notice that the nature of what we do is always based on our desires. We do what we want to do. And I cannot change my own wants. Something else has to give me a new desire. Something outside of me draws me and I go, oh, and now that's what I want. And what is it that changes my heart? The Spirit of God. Jesus then made that point in John 8. He says, if God were your father, because they were claiming that they had Abraham as their father and therefore they were of God because of their heritage. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. As it is, you want to kill me. 
Now, this, this is really bizarre what Jesus did there, if you think about it. This was a group of people who came to Jesus, believing in him. But Jesus then says, no, you're really of the devil. You don't believe in me because, in fact, your desire is to kill me. Now, why would they start by believing in him? And then at the, oh, by the way, how does that chapter end, chapter 8 in John? They pick up stones to try and kill Jesus. So what Jesus had done is basically discerned that they were coming to him for some political reasons, it seems, to find some benefits. Maybe they were going to make him into a a king to drive out the Romans. That's my suspicion. But in fact, what he was really trying to say is that your heart has to change until your desires change, until you really love the Father, which is a, a gift that comes when the Spirit of God brings in this new love relationship that we had lost in Adam and Eve back in the garden. Until that love relationship is present, you're really going to be following after a whole lot of false notions. So, you've got to be born again. That's why the Spirit is so important. And, in effect, he is ready to expose that group of people because they weren't walking in this direction. They really weren't living with the Spirit and the love of Christ within them. And so, for that reason, he exposed it, and by the end of the chapter, they're ready to stone him to death. Now, I think... I wanted to give all of that to you as context for what we have here in Galatians, where he gives this list that seems pretty extreme. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. He's not saying that everyone there who were on the, this group of visitors who had created such a problem in the church in Galatia were all living that level of sinfulness. But what he was saying is that trajectory, just like Jesus said, oh, if you're not with me, then ultimately your desire is to crucify me. And by the end of that John 8, they were ready to kill him because he so exposed their hearts. Now, what Paul is doing here is saying, do you realize that these people who have come from Jerusalem and are trying to draw you away from the true gospel really have that sort of behavioral stuff, those attitudes and actions, as the outcome of their trajectory, their direction of travel. You walk with them, that's that's where you will end up. And you will start to see little snippets of those kinds of attitudes and actions showing up hatred, anger, frustration, all those kinds of things. That's not of Christ. That's not of the Spirit. Okay? Then he wants to swing over in the other direction. So let's go in this dramatic contrast to what it's like when we find ourselves living to Christ by His Spirit within us. And it's really pretty dramatic. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Whoa, give me a neighbor like that and I'll be a happy camper. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, here's a question I have for you. Who machined that nice-looking red thing up there? What kind of machinery do you have to use to produce one of these things? It just comes out of a plant, doesn't it? But if you were to pluck that plant before it got to bear its fruit out of the ground, 
If you were to cut it off at its root, would it ever produce something like this? It wouldn't, would it? Can I manufacture the fruit of the Spirit in my life? The answer is no, I can't. Neither can you. You could, well, today I'm working on joy. <laughs> Are you convinced? All right, how about peace? Oh, <laughs> you can tell a phony from a reality, can't you? And the nature is that a plant produces fruit. You don't work to create the fruit. The plant does it. Who was it that Paul seems to have been listening to when he got this illustration? I know. I bet it was Jesus. Where do we have Jesus talking about the same sort of thing? How about John? I love John. Can you tell? How about John 15? What does it say there? Oh, let me just take a quick look here. In fact, in your NIVs, it would be... I, I hate to tell you, I actually work with the ESV, so I'm always swapping back and forth. I want to honor the NIV, which I think is a fine translation. I just use the ESV. But here, it's, uh, you would find it on page 762. But here it is. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean or pruned because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can't do very much at all. Oh, sorry, nothing. Uh, you can do nothing. Oh, he says. Now, going on to verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. He goes on, verse 26 in chapter 15 of John. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So what is the fruit that we have born in our lives? The answer is our being with Christ. And how can I be with Christ being here in Chippenham in 2012 when Jesus died? Oh, my goodness, thousands of years ago. And then he ascended and, well, he's gone. Or is he? The answer is no, he's not gone. You know where he is right now? Dwelling in me by his spirit, though he's seated at the right hand of the Father. You see, as, as, as one who is embodied eternally, he is not limited because his spirit is not limited in space and time. And the spirit of Christ now lives within us who know him, who have been born of the spirit. And the very qualities of Christ's life are now starting to form in our lives. And that's what it's producing, what is desperately needed in Wiltshire, in Chippenham, in London, you name the place. There is such a deep appetite for what the fruit of the Spirit offers. Who's against any of these? Shall I read the list again and tell me who would vote against any of these things? Oh, not a bad list, to be honest with you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And notice what he says. Against such things there is no law. So let's come back to the law again. What's the function of the law? It's something that puts restrictions on people who don't love other people. That's what the law does. It's for people who don't love other people. 
I, we could have a prohibition against dumping trash in our parking lot. We could put signs up. Do not put trash on our parking lot. And we could get maybe the city council to give us a nice ordinance. You will not litter the parking lot for churches in Chippenham. Would that change the behavior of young children who just eat something and throw the wrapping away? Not unless their hearts are changed. See, you have to move from the inside out. All the rules in the world won't change someone's behavior unless they happen to know someone's watching. But the question is, the heart issue is when someone's not watching. That's when you discover what a person is really about. And here's what I discovered in my own experience of knowing Christ and enjoying Christ. I found one of the things that I'll do. I just let me. You, you may wonder if I've got any order to my notes. Well, I do sort of. But I'm thinking about going to Portland in Oregon, flying tomorrow. You know, one of the things that I mentioned when I was up in Dundee on Thursday, I, I said, "Do we have a hot? Uh, is this a hot spot? Do we have Wi-Fi here?" I said, um, I was making a point, and I thought, oh, I would illustrate it. I said, go on the Internet and Google Hug Point, Oregon. And so they Googled it, and here's a bunch of pictures of Hug Point, Oregon. You know where Hug Point is? It's on the Oregon coast south of Cannon Beach. And you know where I go to have dates with God? To Hug Point. Not a bad place, right? God, I need to be embraced by your love. Could I have a little time with you? Are you available? And Christ always says, yeah, I'm available, Ron. Come and be with me. And I'll spend maybe two or three hours doing Bible reading. And I'll just say, oh, Lord, I need to get to know you. I need to be with you. Because the fruit that is birthed out of that kind of time is what everyone else needs to be coming out of a guy like me. And I enjoy it so much. If you've got an Internet, go to Hug Point, Oregon. Take a look at it. It's a beautiful spot. But the point I want to make there is not to say, am I not a godly man? I'm an ungodly man that God is gracious to start to change. That's all I am. And he's touched my heart. And here's what I discover. When I go down to Hug Point, Oregon, and spend two or three hours there doing my Bible reading, and I, I do my big prayers there. It's always something like this. Lord, I'm so... You know, it's just got some struggle issue. And it's either your fault or my fault, and I don't find my kid changing... It's never your fault. It's always my fault. So could you change me? So I just literally throw myself in desperation as a man who needs to continue to grow and change into his arms. And here's what I discovered. <laughs> I thought it was odd. Now, it's one thing for me to pick up litter in my own garden or lawn or, you know, right around my house. But I do not pick up other people's litter in a distant place unless I've been at Hug Point. And guess what happens when I come back from Hug Point? I turn my radio off and start singing hymns and songs and choruses, and I pick up litter wherever I find it. I don't know why. It could be that that's just the fruit of having been around one who is pure and holy and loves what he's created and wants it to be beautiful. And it infects me. Now, is there any law that tells me to do that? Well, not really. Is there a law that would change the hearts of kids that might litter our parking lot? Well, we could make up some. Would it change their hearts? Not until they have the Holy Spirit within them. Do you see the challenge that we face? We've got to have the Spirit of God in our hearts changing us, and then we can infect them. 
And I think we're all there in some measure, but we must begin to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's really the message of Galatians. Just saying, you know, okay, so the punchline here, he says, now, you know, once we've got this fruit, there's no law against these things. So, so don't focus on the behavioral stuff. Focus instead on the heart. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice the problem is faulty desires. And what I did when I came to Christ is I gave him the faulty desires. And he says, I need to die for these. He died for them on the cross and back in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And I'm now dead with that stuff. I just said, ah, that stuff, I'm done with it. Here you go. Now, even if some of my habits continue to operate, that I still have the old habits. When I go to Hug Point, when I spend time in the Word, guess what? The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and begins to change me from the inside. And that's what He does for all of us. That's why we're here this morning, to hear the heart of God. And as that starts to happen, we see that uh, since the Spirit of... We live by the Spirit, now let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. That's how he wraps this thing up. And that's the problem, the fruit that has been brought to the Galatians after they had started so well. Now they're back to behaviors that are rooted in how can I work on being a better person? I want to bear more fruit. I'm going to manufacture a new fruit tomorrow. You can't manufacture it. It comes from abiding in Christ, his spirit abiding in us. So how do you get there? If you abide in my word, abide in my love. Well, I'm preaching now. I'm meant to teach. Let's pray. Ah, Father, we thank you for your love expressed to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the truth that sets us free. We thank you that we can live by the spirit. And Father, there may be some here who are not yet born of the Spirit. I just pray that some here might just say, Lord, I'd like to have that. I'd like to taste and see how good you are. Please come in and fill my life, too. So we pray for that, Lord. And we pray that we could really make a difference in a community that is so desperate for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.